0: Participants, please stand by. Your conference is ready to begin. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the National Bank of Canada's Third Quarter Results Conference Call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Ms. Linda Boulanger, Vice President of Investor
1: Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Boulanger. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to National Bank's third quarter 2020 presentation. Presenting to you this afternoon are Louis Vachon, President and CEO. Bill Bonnell, Chief Risk Officer, and Gislain Parent, Chief Financial Officer. Following our presentation, we will open the call for questions. Also joining us for the Q&A session are Stéphane Achard and Lucie Blanchette, Co-Heads of PNC Banking, Martin Gagnon, Head of Wealth Management, Laurent Ferreira and Denis Giroir, Co-Head of Financial Markets, and Jean Dagenet, CNUVP Finance. Before we begin, I refer you to slide two of our presentation, providing National Bank's caution regarding forward-looking statements. With that, let me now turn the call over to Louis Vachon.
2: Yes, Linda, and thank you everyone for joining us. Earlier today, we reported very good results for the third quarter in the context of what continued to be a challenging environment. Our businesses performed well with pre-tax, pre-provision earnings up 5% from last year and the bank delivered a return on equity of 17%. As we continue to navigate this uncertain environment, our results demonstrate the resilience of our business model and the benefits of our diversified earning stream. In terms of outlook, economic and market indicators are sending mixed signals. After an extraordinary plunge in the first half of the year, Canadian and Quebec economies have become climbing back with a phased reopening. In the province of Quebec, given the strong rebound anticipated in the second half of the year, our economists are now forecasting an 8% contraction of the GDP in 2020, followed by a 5.5% recovery in 2021. In terms of provisioning, we were very proactive last quarter and significantly, significantly increased our PCLs, reflecting primarily to reflect the deterioration in the macroeconomic cost conditions caused by COVID-19. In the third quarter, we continue to prudently build reserves, although at a much lower pace. Our total allowances for credit losses increased to more than $1.3 billion, as we recognize that the future path of the recovery and the impacts on our clients remain uncertain. At this point in time, With the information available, and considering our positioning and the performance of our portfolios, we believe that we are adequately provisioned. Bill will provide further details in in his remarks. At the end of the third quarter, the bank had strong capital levels with a CT1 ratio of 11.4 in line with the previous quarter. In terms of capital deployment, our long-standing strategy remains unchanged. We will invest in our businesses where returns are accretive, otherwise, returning capital to our shareholders, if permissible. Consistent with OSFI's expectations, our share buyback program remains on hold. Turning now to quarterly performance of our business segments. In PNC, pre tax and pre provision earnings are down 8% year over year as a result of the lower interest rate environment and softer client activity in the context of COVID partly offset by solid growth in retail mortgages and deposits. Since the crisis began, we have been supporting our clients with deferred measures across uh, a breadth of products. Since Q2, the value of retail loans on the deferrals is down 60%. In addition, the vast majority of clients are resuming payments as scheduled as they exit deferral programs. Wealth management pre-tax pre-provision earnings were up 4% year over year in the third quarter. Transaction volumes remain elevated at National Bank Independent Network and National Bank Direct Brokerage. Most importantly, assets under administration and under management return to their pre-COVID levels, which should help alleviate, uh, alleviate some of the pressure on net interest income from the current rate environment. Once again, we are pleased with the strategic and technology choices we have made in the past, and we we remain committed to our client-facing strategy as we navigate these uncertain times. Financial markets delivered solid growth with pre-tax, pre provision earnings up 17% on a year-over-year basis. Our performance was driven by double-digit revenue growth in both global markets and corporate and investment banking as well as uh, an industry-leading efficiency ratio. Our results this quarter highlight the agility of our financial markets franchise, which is key to delivering strong and consistent returns. This is particularly important in the context of low interest rate environment, providing the bank with a diversified earning stream. Looking forward, our priority remains to support our clients in challenging and uncertain markets while maintaining a prudent risk profile. Our international segment continues to perform well. Suisse results were solid this quarter, reflecting higher revenue and lower PCL as a result of a lower COVID-19 impact versus prior quarter. Investment volumes remain strong in Q3 with average assets up 29% compared to last year. We are very comfortable with Creditage's book, which remains diversified and well positioned to withstand the impact of COVID-19. As mentioned at Q2, in the current context, we expect CreditGee's earnings to be flat this year. Looking forward, we are confident in Credigy's ability to generate disciplined growth in the medium term. At ABA Bank, we saw momentum picking up starting in mid-June. During the third quarter, ABA delivered solid results with net income up 35% year-over-year, year, driven by strong growth in loans and deposits. Over the last few months, ABA was able to grow at a faster pace than the market, with clients attracted by ABA's industry-leading digital solutions and strong brand, which have become key differentiating factors. As a result, ABA recently surpassed the one million client threshold in Cambodia and continues to have strong momentum. Overall, we are very satisfied with our international activities which are positioned to perform well throughout the crisis and beyond. In the current context, we are pleased with our overall strategic positioning, which we view as defensive, namely our super regional bank model operating primarily in Canada, our overweight position in Quebec, which has strong economic fundamentals and is showing solid momentum since the reopening of the economy, our lower exposure to unsecured debt, our above-average exposure in fee-based businesses like financial markets and wealth management, which is translating into strong earnings power, providing us with additional flexibility, our unique strategy outside of Canada, and the evolution of our culture into a collaborative and adaptable organization, a key competitive advantage, especially in the current environment. In conclusion, I am satisfied with our third quarter results and with how we have navigated the crisis to date. While significant uncertainty remains regarding the duration and the impacts of the crisis, there are clear signs that the economy is rebounding. I would like to take this opportunity to sincerely thank all of our people at National Bank for their continued dedication and unwavering commitments to our clients. With that, I will now turn the call over to Bill.
3: Merci, Louis, and good afternoon, everyone. During the third quarter, we maintained our proactive and prudent approach to provisioning in the context of an uncertain macroeconomic environment. The progressive reopening of the economy was apparent, capital markets rebounded and were easily accessible by issuers, commodity prices increased materially materially, and market volatility declined. However, the path to recovery is likely to be long and remains uncertain. You'll see this clearly in our economists' updated forecasts presented in the graphs on slide 31. Our baseline expectations are for unemployment to slowly recover, but to remain well above pre-crisis levels throughout the forecast period. And risks are skewed to the downside for both employment and GDP. In the table on the right, you'll find our baseline forecast for several macroeconomic indicators presented on a full calendar year basis. You can note that our quarter over quarter updates for those economic and market indicators were mixed. Turning to slide seven, Our total provisions for credit losses in Q3 were $143 million or 35 basis points, 70% lower than last quarter and up almost 70% from last year. Performing PCLs totaled $62 million. This quarter, the main drivers of our performing PCLs were an update to our IFRS 9 scenarios and factors, an increased weight assigned to the pessimistic scenario, credit growth and migration, and an increase in the management overlay to take into account elevated uncertainties as well as what we think was just a temporary improvement in retail credit metrics experienced this quarter. The result was 15 basis points of performing PCLs spread across the retail, non-retail and the international portfolios. Impaired PCLs totaled $88 million, only 17% higher than last year. The positive impacts of support programs were evident here, particularly in the retail portfolios, which saw a significant decrease in impaired PCLs. Looking ahead, we expect impaired losses to trend upwards into next year and want to remind you that these can be lumpy from quarter to quarter in the non-retail portfolios. On slide 8, the progression in our allowances for credit losses is presented. Total allowances increased to $1.3 billion in the quarter, a 70% increase from the pre-COVID level. Performing allowances increased by $58 million to more than $1 billion, an increase of 76% since Q1. And non-performing allowances increased to $342 million, which represents a strong 43% coverage of gross impaired loans. Given we remain cautious about the path of the recovery, we believed it appropriate to continue proactively building performing allowances. With the information we have today, and based on the geographic, product, and sector mix in our loan books, we are very confident that we have a prudent level of allowances. On slide 9, we've updated some key ratios we track that demonstrate the adequacy of our provisioning. Performing allowance coverage remained very strong at 2.8 times the last 12 months impaired PCLs, and total allowances now cover 4.7 times our last 12 month net charge offs Turning to slide 10, gross impaired loans increased moderately to $794 million, or 49 basis points. Net formations declined in corporate lending and accrediG, while commercial lending had net repayments in the quarter. On slide 11, we provide updated insights on our exposure to those sectors most directly impacted by COVID-19. Our exposure to consumer discretionary sectors is modest and declined on a quarter over quarter basis. An update on our customers' loans under deferral are shown on slide 12. The number of new retail deferral requests during the third quarter declined by almost 90% versus Q2. The value of retail loans still under deferral declined by 60% during the quarter as more customers resumed regular payment schedules. In the remaining $3.6 billion of RESL, nearly half are insured and the LTV of the uninsured portion is 60%. Just $35 million of credit card and personal loans combined remained under deferral at the end of July. Non-retail deferral balances were stable as the vast majority of these were for a six-month term. I think these positive metrics demonstrate the effectiveness of the programs put in place to support clients, early signs of our clients' increased confidence, and prudent consumer behavior. However, we're monitoring payment patterns closely. For expired result deferrals, we've seen 98% already restart regular payments. And we've noticed that the performance on expired deferrals in Quebec appears to be stronger than in other provinces. It is too soon to draw firm conclusions though, as we're still in the very early days in the transition. We'll have better insights on this at the end of next quarter. On slide 13, details of our RESL portfolio is provided. The weight in Quebec was stable at 55% and insured mortgages accounted for 38% of the portfolio. Uninsured mortgages and HELOCs in the GTA and GVA represented 10% and 2% respectively, with an average LTV of 51%. In the appendices, you'll find further details on our loan portfolios and our market risk. In closing, while the economic recovery is underway and we've seen signs of the positive impact of support programs, much uncertainty remains along the path of recovery. Looking forward, while we believe the peak of total PCLs is behind us, We expect impaired PCLs to trend upwards through next year, while our performing PCLs should be driven primarily by changes in our macro scenarios, portfolio growth, and migration. We remain confident that having maintained our defensive posture in business and geographic mix, and having prudently built allowances to help offset future credit losses, we're very well positioned to continue supporting our clients through these challenging times. On that, I will turn the call over to Gisela.
4: Thank you, Bill, and good afternoon, everyone. My remarks today will focus on capital, beginning on page 15. We ended the third quarter with a strong CT1 ratio of 11.43%, up four basis points from last quarter. The improvement mainly came from strong internal capital generation, which added 45 basis points, excluding provisions for credit losses. This highlights the value of of our diversified and consistent earnings stream. Even during these times in which we are prudently building strong credit reserves, our resilient earnings allow us to continue growing our franchise and serving our clients when they need us the most. As highlighted by Bill earlier, we continue to prudently build allowances in the third quarter, representing 11 basis points of CT1. Risk-weighted asset growth reduced our CT1 ratio by 25 basis points. Turning to page 16 on risk-weighted assets, during the third quarter, we stayed the course on business development while remaining prudent. Risk-weighted assets growth related to credit risk includes both on- and off balance sheet items. While on balance sheet, loan growth was moderate as many wholesale clients repaid precautionary draws they made in Q2, on-drawn commitments, and counterparty credit risk grew. During the quarter, we were proactive on both a top-down and a bottom-up approach to re-rating our wholesale borrowers, which generated eight beeps of negative migration. That was partially offset by improving uh, ratings in retail clients, due mainly to low delinquencies and lower utilization. We were very pleased again this quarter with our organic capital generation and seek continued opportunities to invest that capital across all of our businesses. We have demonstrated the resilience and diversification of our earnings stream, which allows us to generate capital at an industry-leading ROE of 17%, while proactively building strong credit reserves and absorbing risk-weighted asset growth. Now turning to page 17. As anticipated, our liquidity coverage ratio remained strong at 161%, with sustained growth in deposits across the bank. Our total capital ratio stood at a strong 15.1% at the end of the quarter. We are confident, with the information known at this time, that even under deteriorating economic conditions, we can maintain capital levels well in excess of regulatory minimum requirements. For illustrative purposes, in our stress test scenarios, a one-notch downgrade on the wholesale book would negatively impact our CT1 ratio by approximately 100 basis points. In conclusion, while much uncertainty remains, the bank has a strong balance sheet, a defensive credit positioning, and solid liquidity and capital ratios. All of our businesses are performing well, and we remain disciplined on expense management, providing us with a resilient earning stream. On that, I'll turn the call back to the operator for the Q&A.
0: Thank you. We will now (coughs) take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you are using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making a selection. If you have a question, please press star one on your device's keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star one at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while participants register for questions. We thank you for your patience. Our first question is from Steve Terrio from 8 Capital. Please go ahead. Thanks very
5: much. A couple for me. Uh, Just a quick one, Bill, for you to start. You worked your way through most, virtually all of the credit card deferrals you had on. Uh, you, You indicated that. 98% 98% of the REZL deferrals have restarted regular payments. Can you talk a bit about how it's gone with CARDS um, in terms of uh, uh, how that's trended in terms of restarting payments or any color you can provide there, given you're a little further ahead than some of the others?
3: Sure. Uh, thanks for the question, Steve. And I'll start, and Lucy may have some, uh, some additions um, we didn't give color on credit cards because uh, the similar to the result, it, it was very positive uh, the performance that we've seen. But given the billing cycle, um, the, the sample size is small and we're a little shy. We'd like another couple of months before we uh, we draw some conclusions on it. But I can say it was similar to the uh, the result and and quite uh, quite positive with the same characteristics of kind of geographical differences uh, between provinces. Lucy, do you have something to add? Um,
1: I would say that uh, basically on the credit card, uh, we see prudent behavior. So more than half of the clients that were on default have reduced their limited utilization also. And the vast majority of them have made payment during the deferral period.
5: Okay, thanks for that. And then secondly, uh, I want to ask a question on on trading revenues uh, they didn't show quite as much upside as what we saw from some of the other banks that have reported this quarter so uh, and in particular equities was a even a bit below recent run rates uh, so maybe it'd be helpful just to have a little color a on sort of the equity trading line and b maybe refresh us or give a give us a bit of context of say why why Q2 was a bigger quarter uh for 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 you guys at national on the capital market side versus q3 um any sort of color would be would be helpful there
6: uh yes uh, steve this is Laurent, so i'll uh, answer your question i'll start with equity um so q3 uh we had a significant drop in volatility levels uh specifically july august versus q2 um our activity Uh, Also, on the equity side, is concentrated on ETF trading. Um, ETF trading, uh, there was a significant boost in trading volumes in Q2. Uh, That subsided in Q3. Uh, You also saw a tightening of spreads, bid offer spreads, I think, uh, in most equity products throughout Q3 uh, and more specifically towards the end. So I think, you know, you, you made the point. I think it's important to look. At uh, Q2, transition to Q3 um, <clears throat> in the context of the crisis, look, we're really satisfied. I think the overall performance of uh, our equity segment, you know, having navigated through very large movements in, in volatility, volatility levels throughout Q2 and Q3, spikes in markets, obviously, uh, record lows and new highs now. So I think overall, we're, we're very comfortable there. We also saw uh, a shift in Q3 in terms of market opportunity from equity finance towards more fixed income. So you're seeing that in our results, and I think that's you know, a, a, um, a good example of the agility in our trading team. Um, so you know, our trading revenues, our, our, our revenues on the equity finance side have uh, gone down significantly throughout the quarter. But we saw the, 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 uh, the upside in our fixed income. So we saw spreads go down, demand go down on the equity side, but we definitely saw a pickup on, on the fixed income side. Um, there's also uh, a difference, you know, if you look at our, our capital markets model versus our, our peers, we are Canadian. Our platform is Canadian. We're concentrated uh, and, and we're focused on Canadian clients. And so we're not active in the U.S., and, um, you know, I think you've seen a very large upswing in U.S. credit throughout Q3, so we didn't participate in that. So I don't know if that gives you uh, a bit more uh, color on, on, on our results.
5: Oh, that's great color. Thanks, lot.
0: Thank you. Our following question is from Minnie Groman from Scotia Bank. Please go ahead.
7: Hi, good afternoon. Uh, just following up on the capital market side, in Appendix 11, the trading bar trend uh, got more uh, negative. Um, just wondering uh, what the explanation is is for that and if you can provide some insight into Q4 and, and whether you're contemplating making changes to, to get to where you want to be in Q4.
6: Sorry, Mandy. you're saying that our, our VAR levels are higher or? Higher, yes. Okay. Um, so we didn't change our, our strategy. I think you've heard us in the past. Um, uh, we are, you know, typically defensive. We like uh, being long vol in general. Um, and so we didn't change that, that strategy. I think the big change here is uh, data. Uh, you know, we went through a stress period and that stress is in our numbers. Um, so we didn't reduce or change really our strategy or or our risk profile. It's really, you know, having gone through a stress period, and that stays with us for a period of time.
7: Okay. And and then just um, if I look at the uh, Appendix 13 and, and the economic forecasts, one number stands out to me is just the, the change in the home price index forecast for 2021. And I'm just wondering what's driving that uh Bigger negative. I mean, you're going from basically forecasting flat to negative uh, 8% um, Q4 over Q4 and 21. And I'm wondering the implications uh, of that forecast for your mortgage business and your just your overall view of of credit um, uh, in in the mortgage business in particular.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll start off and then I'll let Lucy talk about the mortgage business. Um, thanks for the question, Manny. But uh, the, the change really was pushing – it wasn't a significant change in, the, in the, the, the total from quarter to quarter. It was really a pushing it out uh, later, um, what, we, what our economists expect will be a, a decline in house prices. So if you look at the Q2, it was more front-loaded in 2020. And uh, then some again in twenty twenty one based on the experience that we actually see in the in the market and updating uh you know for for real numbers uh in the quarter, it certainly has been more positive uh, uh and the home price index in in the third quarter than we estimated it would be uh, back last uh, uh three months ago so it's really more of a of a push forward of uh, of a potential decline and lucy on the Mortgages.
1: Yes, so on the mortgages, what we see right now is really the result of the confinement, and I think we will have the full impact of that in 2021, like Bill said. But uh, I think there are still going to remain lots of uh, differences across the country and through the different regions and also through the different types of dwelling, uh, with probably uh, less of an impact on single dwelling, maybe more of an impact on condos. That still has to be seen. Thanks for that. Thank you.
0: Our following question is from Gabriel Deschaine from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead.
8: Uh good afternoon. My next que- uh, for my first question is for uh for Bill. Uh you you commented and it's in the slide there the uh the PCLs the impaired uh, uh, PCLs uh reflect the uh, you know government the benefits of the government programs. Uh so what I understand from that is that perhaps some loans that would have gone impaired uh, didn't because there was some government program that uh, prevented that outcome. Uh, is that correct? And is there any way to quantify that? Because a lot of people wonder, you know, what happens after uh, some of these things, uh, you know, end.
3: Hi, Gabrielle. Thanks for the question. So um, I'd say it's more than than just government programs. It's also the uh, you know the deferral programs that the banks have put in place. And you're you're right. I pointed, I think, specifically on the retail side.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: uh, in Q3, we we saw retail impaired losses um, about 14 million dollars lower than last quarter. Um, that uh, that's because the the metrics in retail you had the the, uh, the roll forwards into delinquencies wasn't happening for those that were uh, were under a deferral program. You had lower utilization. Uh, a lot of the indicators into the you know the 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 models that attribute scores for the mm-hmm. retail clients were showing great benefits. and uh, so it ended up that we took uh, lower impaired losses, and I think that's pretty consistent across the the sector and credit cards and others. Um, given that we think that it is uh, it's temporary. Right. We used uh, our IFRS 9 and our forward-looking management overlay to offset that. So you saw uh, build in and, and performance seven, 17, yeah, million uh, in personal 18, including wealth. So, so um, I don't know whether that uh, answers your your question. But um, was there a second one coming?
8: It, it, it does. Yeah, and I, I do have a second, and it's it's for you and, mm-hmm. and or Lucy. I guess you both have input on it. It's on on the, the deferrals. And some of the trends and the numbers within your book, but also relative to peers, within your book, big drop in the number of or value of mortgages deferring payments, bit much bigger than what we've seen from the other banks. Is that a geographic thing? How are you managing it? Uh, and then versus the non-retail portfolio, big drop in retail, not so big, well, it's flat in, 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 in non-retail. I I I just want to know what's uh, what's going on there are these 6 month deferral programs or are we going to have a you know the rubber meets the road in, in October kind of thing or uh something else going on
3: Yeah Gabrielle I'll start uh on the non-retail then I'll pass to Lucy and we'll we'll share insights on the retail so on the on the non-retail you had it exactly right uh, the vast vast majority um of the deferrals were uh were for 6 months so mm-hmm. it's really in Q4 that we'll see uh those uh, rolling out of uh, deferrals. Um, The small number that have come off uh, out of deferrals so far, the performance has been positive, but again, I'll caution it's early days. Um, Lucy, on the retail?
1: Yes. So, Gabriel, it's really the the reflect of the approach that we took. So, uh, back in March, I'd say a couple of days into the shutdown, we had to make quick decisions on how to proceed with deferrals, knowing also that this would be a big uncertainty looking forward. So on the unsecured credit, we offered three months, um, and it's important to know that we have stopped offering deferrals on unsecured credit as of June 30th. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And on mortgages, um, actually what we did is we offered up to six months, but uh, we approached it um, to work proactively with our customers for a first three-month period and then proceed with another three months at their request based on each individual need for hardship. So there were a couple of reasons why we did that. Uh, First, we wanted to be proactive and work with our customer quicker than in six months to better understand their situation and find proactive solutions. But we also understood that there was a cost for them to defer their payments, and we wanted to limit that impact as much as possible. And obviously, it gave us some insights uh, on the risk trends before six months.
8: All right, that's uh, that's very thorough answer. Uh, That's all I need. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Following question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
9: Hi. Good afternoon, Uh, Bill. The impaired PCL ratio, 20 basis points, obviously quite low, and uh, as you've indicated, you do expect that to trend higher, you know, as we move uh, through Q4 and into next year. And I guess, you know, is there any way to size this? Like, I know you've given guidance on PCLs in the past, and I guess I, I get that we're in more uncertain in times, but is there any way to kind of, in, in your models, to give us a sense of what that impaired PCL could look like as we go through fiscal 21?
3: Uh, thanks for the question, Doug. I'm going to give you a two-part answer, and you may not like, like it, but the first part is um, I'm not comfortable to give you a, a basis point guidance on it uh, the main reason is because uncertainty is is very very high. You know we're only six months into this global pandemic. I've been through a lot of uh, different downturns in the in the you know, past in my career, but never a global pandemic. So I think it's uh, better to be prudent and and uh, and have a few more months before we think about giving guidance. But the second part, Doug, is I'm happy to share with you how I think about what our total PCLs will be looking forward. And, And the first point is, I think, like in any downturn, the migration to impaired and impaired losses doesn't happen all at once in one or two quarters. It happens over time. And I think in this specific downturn, the nature of the pandemic and the nature of the programs that were put in place, that it may be longer for that to happen than, uh, than in some of the other financial downturns I've seen before. The second is, I have a firm belief that what's gonna drive the total aggregate of our realized losses through this cycle are really gonna be the decisions we took over the last two or three years on our our business mix, on not stretching for growth uh, during the late stage of the cycle. So I think that in in the end, I think I've mentioned it before, it's gonna be what's the aggregate impaired losses that we take. And finally, um, the way I think about it too is in an IFRS 9 world, you know, if we built adequate performing allowances, at some point looking forward, that those allowances are going to bleed back into to uh, income to offset the impact of the impaired losses. So, with that context and what uh, you know, how I think about it, I'm comfortable to say that you know, I believe we saw the the peak in total PCls in Q2. I think that Q3's 20 basis points of impaired PCls is low, and it's going to trend up. Um, and I I'm, I'm really think that the level of our performing allowances, you know at 2.8 times coverage of, uh, of last 12 months impaired and 4.7 times net charge-offs, uh, I'm, I think that it's a prudent level, given our mix and the cautious decisions we took over the last few years.
9: And just Bill, on the allowance side, you talk about management overlay, I'm sure there was some in Q2, Q3. Can you size like what that was? I I know you didn't want to factor in too much of the benefits of retail because uh, it's too soon and and there's going to be some deterioration, but is there any way to size like how much that, that overlay factored in? I think in the
3: past I think I'm comfortable giving you direction, but I don't think we've talked about size. So it it, you know the our our performing uh, PCLs were a lot lower this quarter than last quarter, Um, and I gave you the the, really the key drivers of it in my text, and um, and I thought it was important to mention that given the uncertainties and the like we talked about the temporary impacts on the retail and pairs. We thought it prudent to uh, address that through our forward-looking management overlay, um, but uh, no, I wouldn't want to size
5: it for you.
9: Okay, and then just second question: the on the set one ratio, a bit different than what we saw from others. You know, you did have a negative impact um, from RWA uh, this quarter, and just trying to just trying to get a sense of can, uh, maybe you can unpack what really drove that. Um, and then you know, same idea. So how do you see that? Some of your peers have kind of talked a bit of how they think the set one ratio could unfold over the next uh, two to three quarters, and obviously with negative migration coming through, like how, how do you foresee uh, that occurring? Migration flowing through and impacting your set one ratio over the next year? Maybe I can start on
3: the on the migration and then and then bust it off for the the other, but. In terms of uh, in terms of migration, as you know, in the retail book, it's it's very much input into the model-driven, um, as opposed to commercial and corporate, where mm-hmm. it's file by file uh, assessment. For our our commercial and corporate, um, we we have both the top down and the bottom up, um, and typically we focus on getting the the re-ratings done quickly for the higher risk files. So uh, oil and gas is the sector that, uh, oil and gas and the retail sector um, are the sectors that have seen the highest uh, um, downgrades or migration from our reviews. Um, for oil and gas, uh, the spring review was was pretty well done um, by the end of the quarter. For some of the other sectors in commercial, it takes a little little longer. So we were, were more proactive on the top down for, for um uh, uh on a top down approach of reducing or, or decreasing the risk rating on uh, on those files which had not yet been reviewed individually and we did that for retail and for uh, commercial real estate the retail segment and then on the commercial the the file by file approach again we focus on uh, a risk based approach and also on the larger files and so far for our commercial reviews we're about 45% uh, done in value, and that'll continue on over the next uh, next couple of quarters. So that's it for migration. And uh, and one last uh, comment on migration is there are many sectors which we didn't see much negative migration. We saw some sectors our food and pharmacy, and and uh, our gold mining uh, portfolios and such. We saw very little migration uh, in in many other sectors than those touched uh, directly by COVID.
4: Well, as Bill mentioned, uh, you know we expect some negative migration uh, in the next quarters, but it's going to come, you know, gradually, uh, uh, you know, on the quarters, and uh, and uh, it will be manageable, manageable within our CT1 ratio.
2: And to add to that, it's uh, Louis. Um, so generally, in terms of position, in terms of CT1, what you should expect over the next few quarters. Uh, you should expect that ratio to creep up uh, over time, um, you know, given our – I think we have been generating good uh, organic uh, capital generation. Uh, and at the same time, though, I think the issue where risk, uh, risk-weighted asset came this quarter, the increase came from uh, capital markets on off-balance sheet items. Uh, and generally, I think we can uh, – we're comfortable, given where we are in terms of performance, that we can, you know, slowly creep up in terms of CT1 and still uh, use uh, additional risk-weighted assets um, to uh, to grow the business and, uh, frankly, generate uh, revenue growth for 21 and 22. So I think that's what you should expect uh, going forward. Great. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. The following question is from Sorab Mobahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
10: Hey, thank you. <clears throat> Louis, I just thought maybe I can uh, go to you. When you finished your remarks, you said you were satisfied with the quarter's uh, results. What would have made you ecstatic? <laughs> did, did you have a
2: part-time job as a psychologist? <laughs> I think
6: I mean, it's tough to be – I'll, I'll, I'll,
2: I'll give you the more substantive answer. I, I think uh, it is, a, you know, obviously a, what we called it, a very good quarter. Uh, it's tough to be static in an environment where you have a pandemic that affects uh, uh, an important segment of the population in a very negative way.
10: So when when so six months into a global pandemic, your uh, EPS back to pre-pandemic levels, your ROE back to pre-pandemic levels, um, so uh, away from the wording that we used to describe it. I mean, how can things get better from here?
2: Sorry, Sorab, I missed the last part of your uh, the, the last part of your question.
10: I, I apologize. I, I just wanted to find out. So how? How can things get better from here, regardless of the words we used to to characterize the quarter?
2: Um, Points of improvement that we're looking at obviously is uh, the, the the sanitary conditions, um, which is still impacting a segment of our population and a segment of our economy, particularly the the distra- discretionary economy in urban centers is still uh, suffering uh, quite a bit from. Uh, from the side effects of the pandemic, so I think over time is uh, how is how is that evolving, and how is uh, you know the pandemic from a sanitary and uh, economic uh, uh, standpoint improving so there there is room for improvement uh, just on the uh, on the, uh, on the on that basis and uh, I'm not a medical expert. I don't know what the timing is in terms of uh, finding a cure or a vaccine for this, but there's still on that, uh, Surab, I think they will continue to be, uh, you know, we would reverse uh, the, um, you know, a negative headwind on the credit front at the very least and uh, hopefully one day on the interest rate front. So that is one, uh, one clear path for me of improvement. The other one is, um, you know, I, I think we, um, the last thing we want to do in, in the context of uh, pandemic pandemic uh, that we have never seen in the context of a globalized and digitized economy. I think you want to remain uh, humble and on your toes in that environment. So the last thing we want to signal is uh, hubris or arrogance in this kind of environment. That being said, I think if you know, uh, you know our organization quite well. National Bank is a combination of uh, regional and sectorial uh, niches. So uh, either, you know, as I said, highly specialized. Uh, or highly uh, knowledgeable on a regional basis, and we feel that uh, that high level of specialty should help us going forward in, in growing, even in quite complex environment and a very uncertain environment. That I think that 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 uh, that positioning has served us well in in the past, and uh, it should continue to uh, to serve us well uh, in uh, you know in different uh, in different possible environments.
10: Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's very helpful. Maybe just to kind of uh, uh, tie it back into one 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 direction. Then, is the direction arrow given everything you said about the uniqueness and the uh, uh, you know the, uh, the the nature of the business and the composition of the activities and what have you? Do um, you think your ROE is heading higher, staying flat, or heading lower from here? I think we'll uh,
2: we'll uh, we'll do the right thing over the long term. I you know we're I think we're, we're satisfied uh, with uh, the strategic choices we have made, I think, in our risk positioning. Um, but, you know, the, the, uh, our objective over the time is to, uh, is to have, you know, a balanced uh, balance score uh, for our stakeholders. will be shareholders, our clients, our employees. So we're, you know, we're not managing the bank on one number. Uh, we're managing the bank on a number of uh, of KPIs and and ways of measuring ourselves, which include, uh, you know, the three main stakeholders uh, that I just mentioned. If they do end up producing the IS, the ROE, uh, you know, all the better. But it is not, uh, I can assure you, we're not managing the bank on one number.
10: I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Thank you. The following question is from Nigel Souza from Veritas Investment Research. Please go ahead.
11: Uh, thank you, good, good afternoon. I have uh, two quick clarification questions for you. The first is on uh, the non-retail uh, loans and deferral. You mentioned that, what's in your presentation, that uh, less than 10% is non-investment grade unsecured. And I was wondering if you could give it a sense of what the total exposure to or mix of uh, non-investment grade credit is and maybe some more color on uh, the sector mix of those non-retail loans
3: in deferral. Hi, Nigel. I'll start off and uh, if Stefan has uh, something to add. Uh, he'll, he'll jump in. Um, what I can tell you about the, the non-retail in terms of sectors, the, the sectors in our portfolio that have got the highest uh, percentage that are in deferral, it's uh, retail trade is the uh, is the first, and that shouldn't be a surprise when we when we dig a little deeper into retail, which is a pretty broad uh, sector, um, the the auto dealerships or auto dealership clients uh, are the are the highest there. And um, while we wouldn't have thought it uh, you know at the beginning of the pandemic, what we've seen recently is, the businesses actually rebounded very, very strongly for our clients in uh, in that sector uh, to where the, I think their July sales were just about back uh, uh, at uh, or or maybe even a little more than uh, than year over year uh, numbers. so so the uh, that surprised the other the other um, sector that the second sector was manufacturing. And we have seen with the reopening of the economy some positive news you know positive signals there, and conversations with clients are are, are positive but i w- will caution you on all of these numbers we're still early uh, and uh, and I don't want to draw too many conclusions, but what we've seen so far has been uh, has been um, good. Stefan, do you have anything to add no,
2: uh, as to the percentage of uh of investment grade versus non-investment grade is
6: as you as you know the the reality is that
11: uh, Nigel that the commercial market is largely non-investment grade. So I, I don't have the number offhand, but
3: the vast majority of our any commercial markets business is is typically non-investment grade. Yeah, typically Nigel is the high levels. You know our corporate book it's uh you know more than almost three quarters probably investment grade, and the commercial book is like more than ninety percent secured ninety. 90, 92 percent secured. It's a kind of two buckets, and of course, the deferrals are primarily uh, in the corporate, in the commercial sector. Thanks, Thanks
11: for the that's question. Really, that's that's really helpful commentary. And I just have a quick follow-up, uh, second question here, just on risk weighted assets for retail. Um, so, my understanding is that uh, you know typically these assumptions that feed into risk weighted assets are through the cycle estimates and not so much point-in-time estimates. So, could you provide us some uh, colors and insight into how sensitive your uh, your inputs are for retail RWAs to uh, the delinquency trends in real time, or, or what we see on delinquencies uh, once we move past the deferral period.
3: So, Nigel, I'll I'll start, but I think that may be a question that uh, that we can go into. We could spend a lot of time on, uh, and we could do something offline. But but clearly. Uh, Uh, You're right, the models for for retail for RWA, they're they're different than the IFRS 9 models in that they they are more through the cycle. Um, However, the the drivers of them in terms of the equivalent of a borrower risk rating are impacted by things like utilization, uh, uh, um, delinquencies, and and such. So there is some sensitivity there, and uh, maybe we can follow up uh, offline. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Our following question is from Paul Holden from CIBC. Please go ahead.
12: Thank you, good afternoon. I want to get a better sense of your plans to manage the loan deferrals or specifically the residential mortgage deferrals as they roll off. And ask that question kind of in the context of your own economic assumptions, which suggest home prices are gonna be trending down Next year, so really trying to get a to sense of like how aggressive we are going to be trying to get ahead of that curve and manage through these loans sooner than later. Thanks, Vali. Can you tell them to? Yeah, and, and
3: Paul, we, we were having problems hearing you. I think I captured it, but if if uh, Lucy and I don't answer it, maybe we'll get you to repeat the question because your your voice was uh, was soft. But on the um, a couple of points I'll make on the on the deferrals uh, uh, for residential mortgages. Um, is the as, a, as I think the slide shows the uh, the LTV is 60%. So and the and the, the the credit scores are quite high for those that are in deferral as well. So we think that um, as we transition out, there's uh, even for those that may be having ongoing temporary difficulties with uh, income loss or disruption or others, there there will be uh, good possibilities of working with the, the clients. To find a solution that fits, um, as we dig down into the the portfolio as well, and we we look at how many of the population is what we consider vulnerable or higher risk, and those would be those with a lower credit score, say mid six hundreds and worse, and uh, high LTVs of seventy five percent and higher. Um, the numbers is is pretty small. It's uh, it's less than fifty million dollars, so. Um, the, the approach of how to work with the clients as they come off transition will differ depending on their situation, but the vast, vast, vast majority in that population we think we'll be able to work with. And Lucy, do you want to talk about strategy?
1: Yes, and uh, overall, when we look at the, the mortgage defaults that are left, in terms of relationship with the bank, the average uh, duration is 15 years of those customers. So obviously, we will definitely work with them on a case-by-case basis um and and making sure that we offer them the different options that we have in our playbook in those cases.
12: Got it. Thank you. And hopefully my voice is more clear now. Um so I do have a second question. Um because a, a lot of what we've been focusing on across the banks is sort of the more defensive uh actions taking place and some of the risks, but I think it is interesting to kind of uh, turn a little bit to growth uh potential growth opportunities here, how you're thinking about that like are there pockets of opportunities you're seeing that are arising as a result of the dislocations, whether that's better opportunities to grow in loans or maybe allocate allocate capital to different key income related businesses sort of curious on your thoughts there
2: hi, Paul. It's uh, Louis uh, welcome to the bank beat by the way <laughs> thank you. Um, the uh, I think I, I gave part of the answer uh when I was talking to Sora, but uh clearly let's start with uh you know the, the more obvious part in terms of growth. Um I think our, our international division remains uh very well positioned. Uh uh Cambodia's ABA has very good momentum, which should carry us into uh twenty one, twenty two. And Credit uh, G also, we're, we're quite happy with uh, how they're performing, and uh, uh, so we think we can uh, generate double-digit growth with uh, with that division too. So international, I think we're we're well positioned. Um, we continue to like uh, the real estate market in Quebec, particularly residential market. Uh, Lucy and her team are working uh, very hard on that particular segment with very good success. I think our strategy in terms of specialized commercial uh, both in Quebec and outside of Quebec with uh, Stéphane is doing giving I think has as uh, as room to grow. I think generally uh we'll have uh you know some uh, some tailwinds uh as we you know move out of this pandemic both in retail and commercial uh levels of activity should go up uh, in Canada in, in the recovery so that should help us and help the industry generally. And lastly, I think we're very, very satisfied with uh, the way we're positioned both in wealth management and in capital markets. We're quite differentiated from our peers, and I think we, uh, we like uh, our strategic positioning. Uh, you should probably not expect uh, acquisitions uh, uh, in the short term from us. I think we're very, very focused on organic growth versus acquisition.
12: Got it. Thank you for your time.
2: Yeah.
0: Thank you. Once again, please press star 1 at this time if you had a question. Our following question is from Gabriel Deshane from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead.
8: I yeah, didn't think I'd get the follow-up, but um, anyway, just uh, wanted to circle back with Laurent on um, uh, on the um, bar and, and market risk R- RWA issue. And uh, th- th- it sounds to me like that might be something that could reverse. You know, volatility levels are back down and if, uh, you know, they're they're there they continue on that trajectory could we see some of the uh that that RWA inflation uh, come back in Q4 or Q1 next year all else equal and then on credigy G. Uh, just wondering if uh, your outlook for growth there has changed i'm sure it's still uh, a, a good one but you know with the fed and uh, buying everything out there and and liquidity uh, ample, uh, to say the least. Um, maybe the distressed opportunities just aren't, uh, aren't aren't as big as maybe they looked like a few months ago.
2: I'll start with the credit G, perhaps. Uh, then Laurent will answer on uh, RWA. Uh, you're you're right that uh, you know the uh, the very aggressive quantitative easing uh, has helped uh, market recover and uh, has helped uh, the securitization market, which. In, in some ways is a direct competitor to to Credigy. that being said i think there's still sufficient dislocation uh and disruption in the credit markets in the u s that uh, will still allow us to uh, to generate good growth that's that's what we hear from from the team and uh um so i think we'll uh, uh we'll see i think the uh, uh there's still a lot of episodes uh, to be written on uh on uh, you know how the how the fed will manage uh uh, the pandemic in the U.S. and how the economy, uh, U.S. economy will recover. So that's uh, on that and on the RWA, uh, Laurent. Sure. I,
6: I think, uh, Gabriel, you, you could see a trend down, but uh, we didn't change anything to our strategy. We haven't reduced our activities with clients, servicing our clients. And so, uh, you know, fr- from that standpoint, we don't uh, think that there's going to be any reduction from uh, – uh, the way we've been operating. So the the issue is we've been through a very volatile period, and so that is going to stay with us for a bit of time. Um, but uh, it will it will trend down uh, uh, at some point, uh, Gabriel.
8: Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you. We have no further questions We're just at this time. I would not like to turn the meeting back over to Mr. Vachon.
2: Thank you, everyone, and we'll talk to you next quarter. Thank you. Have a good day.
0: Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time. And we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's Investor Relations section on their website. See you next time.